That's an amazing life lesson from Kat. Oh my goodness. Hello, and welcome to Talking Sense, the sensibility podcast, part of the Ungagged family. I'm your co-host, Kat. I'm your co-host, Erin. And we're two North American women attempting the impossible. Talking sense about Scottish politics. And uh, to, to pull a phrase from, from Hollywood on Gag podcast, uh, this evening's, the third person in this evening's triumvirate is Iona Fife. <laughs> Welcome. Hello. Hello. We're, we have the honor of having actually seen each other in the last, like, week or so uh, in real life. So <laughs> this, is, this is great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Iona? So I'm a folk singer from Aberdeenshire in the northeast of Scotland. I'm now based in Glasgow, in the north of Glasgow. I studied folk music at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and usually make my living from being a touring musician, although the pandemic really changed that. So now I do a little bit of everything, including a lot of recording and teaching and just generally having a portfolio career. Um, but yeah, I got involved in my trade union when I was 16. That's a musician's union. And um, my first ever vote was 2014 in the Scottish independence referendum. So I think I've been quite engaged and switched on to Scottish politics since then because there's a generation of kids that have been. And uh, luckily, I was one of one of those kids. Amazing. Um, and as we'll get a little bit more on to the uh, folk singing and that part of the podcast in a moment. But first, we have to kick off with pride month we're back and it's pride yeah. Hooray. <laughs> obviously we had to come back for this so <laughs> so i've never been to a pride ever like i've never been to one and i think it is probably a lot of you know recently we had the ofi the out for indie conference and i think that comes down to the fact that if you're bisexual you sometimes don't feel comfortable going to some of these events so i've never been to one um, and I don't, I don't know, like, yeah, I'm, I want to as soon as possible uh, this month. But yeah, I, I've never been to one. Never. Yeah. And I mean, that is something that I've sort of found my whole sort of career as a, as an activist. Um, so I've been involved in like queer activism since, God, like 2004. Um, and that was back in Canada. And, you know, I'm, I'm bi and I always found that, um, you know, as I was discussing at the Out for Indie conference, I um, have always found that I get sort of mistaken for being just like a good ally there to support my gay friends and not anyone actually recognizes that I'm bi unless I tell them and then they forget. Um, and that, that that's borne out in the, the statistics that, you know, 42% of, it's only 42% of bi people have never been to um, a queer event or a queer space. And that's not out of not wanting to, that's out of not being sure if they're welcome and I think that that's changing a little bit now um like the theme for Mardi Gras last year was by is beautiful but um I don't know if we're doing a good job or if anyone's doing a good job of getting the message out or um doing a good job of undoing sort of the just decades of bi erasure that's sort of built into like the entire way we talk about the queer community as well as the way that policy is made 
A hundred percent. Like the the resolution that you made that was the the final resolution of the day at the Out for Indie conference, which was held um earlier, uh, well in late May, um earlier in the last few weeks. Um, I think it was <laughs> for me, it was the one that resonated with me the most in the fact that yeah, you feel like you constantly have to reiterate that you aren't just one of the allies that that you actually are bisexual because you don't immediately meet someone and they go, oh yeah, I'm gay, like it's just it's just a thing and like likewise i wouldn't Im- immediately meet someone and go oh i'm bi but like at these mm-hmm. events sometimes you feel like you have to because people are like oh why, why are you here i thought you were i thought you're a boy you know like it's, it's constantly trying to mm-hmm. prove yourself and uh, i do think that yeah it's it's tricky i came out in 2021 in a quite traumatic way like my parents being from aberdeenshire being from a real really rural place that was news for people like the whole of my family was like oh is she gay is she is she, does this mean she isn't gonna have kids does this mean she does she's not gonna have a boyfriend like it was like it was their lives that were turned upside down it was like my family just didn't get it and some of my family were really supportive but some of them just weren't but in the community as well there is this by erasure in the fact that mm, one experience that I've had is um uh, myself and another bi person winched at a party and a gay person who was at that party said you two are a disgrace to the lgbt community and that completely changed my outlook on everything i was like oh but wow okay so it's like it's really difficult to navigate um sensitively but that was that really wasn't a nice experience and it made me kind of get back into my cage a little bit and not mm-hmm. be out and loud yeah, and I think that um, that is definitely something that plays into why um, bi people and especially bi women have um, significantly worse outcomes sort of in terms of um, socially, economically uh, health outcomes than um, gay or lesbian um, people. And it's because we feel like we don't have a place um, in the straight community because we aren't straight. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have a place in the in the queer community because there's this sort of assumption that like as soon as you get with someone who isn't the same sex then you're not part of the community anymore even though you're always bi you're bi whether you're with a woman you're bi whether you're with a man you're bi whether you're with a non-binary person you're always you're always bi it doesn't matter who you're with but yeah ju- mm-hmm. um it's, i think yeah just to yeah. clarify this was a cis man that you know we winched at a party mm-hmm. and because this was a cis man and i was a cis woman like the this other person was like you two are a disgrace to the community i was like sorry what just because we've decided for this one night that we're we're going to be heterosexual like yeah i just don't <laughs> it was really sad and that definitely um that that was that was quite tricky to overcome i thought it was quite hurtful coming from someone within the community so you know how can we overcome this mm-hmm. how do we i think yeah um by exposures is really really important and, and not having that erasure there but and encouraging people to come along to events and feel like they're part of a community i think that is that's important mm-hmm. well i hope you'll join um out for indie at um at mardi gras this year it is july 15th um we'll have a contingent marching so hopefully you'll join us <laughs> That is well, exciting. I am going to, to I'm going to admit right now that I am in Germany. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, oh no, uh, we're also going to be at Edinburgh Pride for June 24th. Just thought Glasgow would be uh, more convenient. Of course. So there, there's a really, really difficult thing that day in the fact that there's an amazing um, event being held at the Scottish Parliament um, for women who want to get more involved in politics. So not only is there <laughs> all under one banner... 
there's also not only is there the snp independence convention there's also (laughs) this event um at parliament for for, yeah it's it's so tricky like everything's happening that day and i really really wish people would have spoke so so it's not just the two that we know of there's also a really good outreach program happening in parliament that day i'm signed up for Um, that i just realized it was the same day (laughs) Yeah, but what time is it at? Um, I think it's an all-day thing. So, so Kat, I don't know what we're gonna do. We're du- we're triple booked that day. Technically, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start out with the Pride brunch, right? All three of us. Yes, we're going to the Pride brunch. Yes, yes, and then. And then you two can go to that and I will handle the marching. It's fine. I mean, my kids love the Pride March. Uh. Oh, that's true, they do. Yeah, especially my daughter was like a little trooper holding up the sign. I have pictures of it from last year. It was amazing. Um, so I will see because also supporting women is being there with you guys and my daughter. And yeah, um, maybe I'll have to pop in and out to the event at Parliament and not go to the parties after. Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly doing the march and then not the stuff after <laughs> so um but yeah i mean we should probably um backtrack just a teeny bit because we started talking about the out for indie conference and didn't actually talk about what that was or or what sort of happened and just to backtrack for our listeners saturday the 27th was the out for independence conference um out for independence is the lgbt affiliate of the snp and i'm presently the the co-convener and we organized our first in-person conference since 2019 um so that we could actually set some some policy and um one of those um one of the resolutions that was passed we passed nine resolutions that day uh one of the resolutions that was passed was about um by inclusion both in terms of in the lgbt community and in terms of um when the scottish government is creating lgbt policy to actually make sure that it is inclusive of by people's needs and has built in um research into um how to include by people in that program that is really i mean i love that resolution i thought it was really interesting and it reminded me of um one really prominent thing in healthcare right now that needs to be resolved and that's smear testing so you know when i turned 23 my mum was like go for your smear test go for your smear test so i booked in for a while and went to the appointment and the nurse was like i can't do this for you until you're 25 i can't do it i'm sorry because you know it keeps going up and up now the reason for that is that you are given the hpv jag when you're in school and it's quite a heteronormative thing. Years ago, when I was doing it, basically the girls got the jags, the boys didn't. The assumption was that the boys who were perhaps going to be with those girls would get herd immunity from the girls. So super heteronormative, super assumptive that, you know, the girls aren't going to get with, you know, other girls or the guys aren't going to get with other guys or, you know, you're going to be with the same age group. So nowadays, boys will get HPV jags in school, which is great. But like, this is a policy that would change completely with more by exposure. I I think. Mm-hmm. I, I think this would be one of yeah. Those no, things. I completely agree with you. Um, because there's this idea that there isn't any any mixing going on. Um, and it is both. Um, it is it's quite. I mean, it really did hit gay and bi men the most because you can get. Um, penile cancer throat cancer and anal cancer from hpv and if they're getting it from each other because they're not vaccinated like that is a health issue 
and it just seemed like nobody cared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just unbelievable that they just thought, well, we don't need to give this to the boys because it's not a problem. Yeah, they'll get herd immunity from the girls. That Yeah, that was mm-hmm. such a heteronormative thing. And I'm really glad that I think it was maybe 2018 they changed it. I'm not too sure. Um, but I just I just know that, you know, nowadays the girls are getting screened later and later and later because the risk is apparently lower. I don't believe it is lower. You know, my results came back and it was like, yeah, you've got loads of HPV strains, just not the bad ones. You'll be fine. <laughs> and most people have it. And like, I'm, you know, totally cool to talk about that because literally almost everyone has it. But it's when the strains mm-hmm. are bad and it's when, you know, it's, yeah, it's not you know you're yeah you it's, could have it's cancer. just really, really yeah rubbish. you could 100 yeah. percent. and we've we've seen people um you know with cervical cancer be be really sick and and have to have treatment but yeah this idea that guys weren't getting vaccinated and the assumption that they would have herd immunity i hate that phrase i hate it so much <laughs> i think it's really in- an interesting point you bring up and also it's a heteronormativeness in in the testing and development process because i can understand that you don't want to give vaccines to people who don't need it so if the hpv you know it was a lot about the precancer cells right that's what they were focused on when they're developing this drug um but they didn't test it on on men perhaps or didn't include that in their package because you know women get treated for the things that men could get and then also women get disbelieved at the doctor so um yeah a lot less uh a lot less thinking inside the box maybe uh in medical testing development and in its implementation that would be great yeah Another really important resolution from the OFI conference was um, the implementation of a racial justice officer for OFI. That is brilliant. I look forward to, to seeing that that happen. Um, and it was really eloquently put, put across. Um, it was good. It's really, really, really important. And I'm really glad we're doing it because I know that there's been some questions about like why not other equalities officers roles. But there is a unique um, issue with... Um, uh, people of color who are LGBT not feeling welcome because of an overwhelmingly white exec and membership. And I don't think that that's the case with sort of any other intersection. Like there's no reason that, uh, you know, we don't need a youth representative. So there's no reason a young queer person wouldn't want to talk to us where the exec's fairly young. There's no reason a disabled queer person wouldn't want to talk to us. The exec is almost entirely people who identify as disabled, but um, there is sort of the issue that um, queer people of color are facing different issues uh queer migrants are facing different issues queer asylum seekers refugees are facing diff- different issues and um just ab- approaching an, a, an overwhelmingly white exec is just not really viable so we're really glad to be creating this role i think it's i think that you just hit the nail on the head on what's so important is like so i was at the conference as an ally um, sometimes people assume I'm bi and I take that as a, as a high compliment, but, uh, no, I'm just there to support because there was a lot of motions that, I mean, even though it was queer focused, HIV testing is not, you know, it, it's for everybody. It improves all our lives. It's just how, you know, the patriarchy hurts men too. All these heteronormative things hurt everyone, not just the queer community, but what you were saying about, um, the racial justice officer, Hamza Youssef, the first minister, was also another ally who was at the conference. He he kicked it off. And I think he's been very visible and vocal and unrepentantly 
active in especially in the queer spaces and maybe that has something to do with it is is what you were saying Aaron that it it's been a problem a historical and a current problem and you know it it's even better that he's you know it's great that he's there for all of that but you couldn't say that Nicola oh, wasn't an ally. Really, really... She absolutely was, but, you know. <laughs> she just won an award recently. Was yeah. it, like, Ally of the Year or something? Yeah, it's really it it's was, lovely to yeah. see her being recognized in a positive way. Um, and that was based mm-hmm. in London. It was a huge award. So, yeah, well done to Nicola. Yeah, Nicola just couldn't have joined us because it was COVID for <laughs> the entire time that she was First Minister and OFI existed, basically. Yeah. But I do think it might be something on his priorities because of that. Um, because he wants people to feel safe and and not alone in those spaces. You know, Scotland is an overwhelmingly white country. Even most of the immigrants, like like Aaron and I, are are white. (laughs) There's so many reasons I'm excited about Hamza as first minister. He was so good at uh, the conference. Um, He spoke really, really movingly about, um, you know, his experience of... um, like organizing to fight Islamophobia and racism at Glasgow Uni sort of in the early 2000s um, when, or not early 2000s, sort of in the late 2000s, sorry. Um, just, you know, as, as things are continuing to be just awful in that entire sort of, I think people often forget just how bad the sort of 2000s and early 2010s were in terms of like um, just how ingrained Islamophobia was i mean it still is but it was just like considered so acceptable then and he spoke really movingly about his like you know his organizing to fight racism and islamophobia at glasgow uni and that the like lgbt student associations were like right there along with him and that you know all of our freedom is contingent on all of each other's yeah support and all of each other's freedom as well and um yeah i thought that was just really moving and just like really just pitch perfect and yeah, and he took a lot of questions from our membership, um, which I, I thought, again, like he was really patient and really thoughtful and it was, it was really good. <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. Like he very much, um, you know, explained that the rights of, of um, LGBT plus people are intrinsically linked with the, the rights of, of um, you know, migrants, refugees, um, BAME people. Like it was just it hit the nail on the head. Um, yeah, I think he's he's a great ally and, you know, from the outset like I wanted him to be first minister because you know I don't want to go back to you know March 2023 that was horrendous but I'm delighted and I think the word was relief to be quite honest and I'm very happy to to say that publicly relief (laughs) same same I didn't have to quit the party (laughs) yes yeah Um, good friend of Aaron's and mine and of the pod uh has been team hamza for about five years uh <laughs> before he started running <laughs> he really has, he really has. <laughs> um so yeah you know i thanks to dov uh i think we were team hamza before like the moment the news broke that nicola was stepping down um yeah and, yeah. and no, it's amazing. I have a saved screenshot of Dov in 2021 saying, I still think Hamza is going to be Nicholas' successor, <laughs> which means he'd clearly had a conversation of it before, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> but um, what you said about like how moving it was that he spoke about how the LGBT uh, organizers at Glasgow Uni were right there fighting Islamophobia. I That is what we need to articulate to certain members of our party and in Scotland who are that think that certain rights uh, can't coexist because I know 
I kind of got into, I, I won't say breastfeeding activism because I wasn't really an activist, but I was getting yelled at to get into a toilet and, and nurse my ch children. And you know who was alongside fighting was trans women, trans people who were being told to get out of the toilets for some reason because they were the problem. So yeah, we're all in this together fighting the patriarchy. And once we get all those those uh, cis men to figure that out too, that it hurts them too, we'll be in a much better place. <laughs> but I mean, like a lot of the time, a lot of allies of trans people are cis men. You know, that that's the thing is that you, you find the allies in the places that you, you genuinely thought you, you wouldn't find them. And then you find um you find the, the critical people in the areas that you, you thought you would find support. Um, but it's interesting you bring up the whole breastfeeding thing because a few years ago, at the SUC Congress in 2019, before COVID, I put a motion through for the Musicians' Union. Basically, it wasn't, nothing got acted on because COVID immediately happened. But it was about the fact that, you know, a lot of venues, a lot of, um, you know, music venues did not have the, the capability of dealing with a, a woman musician who had a baby or had just given birth or had had a child in their, like, early infancy. Um, places like, you know, why does the baby have to come? Promoters and agents saying, why is the baby coming? Uh, not a clean place to express, not a clean, like, um, you know, like, a, you know, like the fridges with beers in them, like not clean enough to put your milk in them. Like this is like early career grassroots musicians that, that don't have the money to like have amazing hotels or have nannies or or whatever. And like that's really important to be able to. To, to breastfeed and do normal things that a mother should do and also be able to work at the same time. And um, I actually believe that the SNP have created a thing through Creative Scotland to support touring musicians and parents who have just, you know, had children. Um, of course, I don't have any children, but I do know some musicians that have benefited from that just to give them some extra um, funds to, you know, be able to have a good hotel room with a room for a crib things like things like that that you don't really think about or be able to have an extra pair of hands on there for um, childcare when you're on stage and uh, that I think that's through Creative Scotland and that of course is an SNP thing so a good another clap for the SNP for a great policy. <laughs> in, case, in case our listeners hadn't noticed this is a far less critical of the of our, our party podcast <laughs> Um, we don't often have three S&P members, uh, you know, Aaron and I are members of the S&P and we usually have somebody that's non-party or green. I think we've had SSP members come in and just talk about what we can do better and how we can go further, basically, uh, to not, yeah. to not like go after the party in a, in any sort of unproductive way, but you know, we're always mm -hmm. searching for things. Is there like that? This is such a broad podcast that it's really healthy to have, you know, debate with with a, not. I'm not going to say the opposition, but like debate with people that really <laughs> don't share your your views. Um, as long as it doesn't get horrific, but that doesn't mean that I don't respect them or or love them as as humans and as women as an allies. So we do need to work towards taking that heat out of political debate be able to move forward with decorum because when i watch fmqs there's not a lot of decorum there at all it's it's becoming a pantomime and i keep saying that every week and and that i hope that like i feel like us i guess women are probably doing a better job at articulating ourselves respectfully and with decorum and i think the guys are letting us down not gonna lie 
I think if we had true equity, we'd probably just be just as bad. But I don't think, you know, <laughs> I don't think um, with uh, the press thing about last conference and Nicola, um, I don't think she's given the same amount of good faith as, as some of the male leaders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She had such heat on her. I think it's really interesting as well because, like, people are practically begging for a labor leader to say they detest the Tories. But if Nicola says it, then it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Double standards. Sometimes people will say, oh, you young Wokies, which thank you for calling me young, (laughs) that we don't care enough about independence. But the thing is, it takes working with people who disagree with you. And to me, yes, events are great. They can be productive. But the thing that feeds me and feeds my activism and feeds my drive for independence is like going on a picket line, going to the Shekupayu inquiry going to different things that I care about and representing, that's my method, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I'm just going to jump in here and being able to show that the SNP are interested in trade unions, they're interested in worker solidarity and workers' rights, they're interested in social justice, they're interested in LGBT, like that's, that, that's the, the main crux of it. Because without that, then, then what, what is an independent Scotland actually going to look like? We need it to be progressive and we need progressive activists. And what you came back about, about you know, speaking to, to people that aren't completely convinced, I think Stephen Gethin's book, Nation, Nation, to, Nation, Nation to Nation, is probably the, the best thing to read about being able to articulate to people who are not on side about you know the the benefits of independence and like the negatives of the union so like yeah he's great at being able to speak diplomatically and I think as a musician you know a few weeks ago I just got back from Australia and it it was very difficult I'm not gonna lie it was not I thought I was going to love it um and unfortunately I I didn't um I I felt like there was a lot of casual racism around there wasn't equity between, um, you know, the indigenous community and, you know, the 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 community of people that weren't indigenous um, to the area. I, I just didn't feel comfortable in some of the places. It's a beautiful country. I was only in Western Australia, but I just felt I left there feeling like mm, something doesn't. This country doesn't feel equal. Um, and then I went to Germany for the weekend, and I, I met Malu Dreer who is the president or the minister of Rhineland-Pfalz and she is the you know, Social Democrat Party and the whole gig was the launch of a music festival and they wanted a Scottish musician to come and sing and you know, there was huge speeches being made um, about, about Brexit, about cultural collaboration, about Scotland um, and we did an interview before we performed and it was just just allies, people who were like, oh my goodness, like, we're so sorry to see that you're still not, you know, independent, like, just, it was amazing, so it's, it's so crazy, being a musician, you, you think that you just, your job is to get up there and sing on stage, but really it's, you'll find yourself meeting, um, meeting other politicians, and meet, you know, she had just met with Hamza, Hamza Yusuf, uh, a week before that, she was very taken by him, I think it's like soft diplomacy, and I think sometimes musicians are overlooked as being our our countries, our nation's greatest ambassadors for for worldwide diplomacy and soft power, as opposed to going in and you know sitting down in a table and all that kind of stuff. Like just having normal conversations. And um, and a lot of the music that we performed that night, 
you know, one was a Woody Guthrie song that I rewrote about the Kenmure Street day and the protest. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it took a lot of explaining, but like, I love my job. It can be really difficult sometimes and you can get so much heat, but really you're turning, you're, you're creating allies abroad. And that's the most important thing. In America, so many people are like, oh man, Scotland. And sometimes it comes from a misplaced, awkward, blood and soil nationalist thing. And I, I don't feel comfortable about that. But, you know, they are genuinely interested in, in Scotland and in, in you know, um, our domestic policy <laughs> politics. But I, I love going to Germany. I'm going there in the next month for two gigs four gigs or something and I just different countries I just fall in love with because they care about us and and that's what it's about I just went on a tangent there but you can have that (laughs) well you know speaking of I mean one of the things that we're we're doing on this podcast is that we're doing sort of a series on what you want to see in an independent Scotland or what independence is for and I think something that I would like to see in an independent Scotland is for us to be a bit more assertive about our language policies. Um, you know, being from Canada, um, I have, you know, a fair amount of firsthand experience of how much language policy can shape um, how a country sees itself. Um, you know, in terms of like, everyone has this idea of Canada as being a bilingual country, but we didn't legislate for that until 1969. And that, that changed basically everything. And just seeing how that has you know, helped the the French language, which I know you wouldn't think about it being a threatened language, but in Canada it was, um, to um to thrive and to uh be able to be um not just in Quebec but across the country has been like it really has changed things. Um in terms of my family are Franco Ontarian, at least half Franco Ontarian. And that is a sort of not particularly well-regarded dialect um, considered to sort of belong to the the backwoods and to, you know, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to be a lumberjack? Are you going to be a, like, fur trader, like, uh, language? And in Ontario, it wasn't well-regarded to the point that my family just stopped speaking it and decided not to pass it on. I know that that's been the case here with Scots, particularly. And I just would... And and changing language policy has changed how people see that. And I'm just one of the things I would I would like to see is for us to to, to take Scots more seriously um, as a language and support it better. I I think yeah, that 100%. Iona has thoughts on this. Do you care about the Scots language, Iona? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. But actually, coming back to the Quebec thing, I actually went on tour with um, a musician um, from from Quebec. And his first language was was French. His English was his second second language, and he did the Poderismy thing, and like he was, you know, a, a bastion of like that sort of tradition. And of course, you know, when I was at the conservatory studying, I had the option to go um, to Nova Scotia to to study there, but it was more like I I just didn't. I had too many gigs in Scotland. I could have went over to Ireland to study Irish folk song as well. Could have went to. Denmark to to do that kind of music too but just I didn't I couldn't do it loads of my friends did it and they went over and they shared Gaelic culture but yeah in Canada we've got I mean I guess the the minority languages are are Gaelic and and French and and English and it's beautiful to see that there has been legislation in 1969 that seems like a hundred years ago um but yeah, the Gaelic Language Act in 2005 was like a Labour Lib Dem thing. And I love that because you, that is a great bargaining chip to actually say to 
to people who oppose Scots legislation, which tend to be unionists, um, by saying, oh, well, actually, Gaelic Language Act um, and the, the board of Gaelic was created by a Labour Lib Dem coalition. This has nothing to do with nationalism. It's nothing to do with the SNP. It's, it's to do with protecting a language. And like the European Charter of Minority Languages has Cornish, Scots, Gaelic, Welsh, Gaelic, um, and Scots is in that. But of course, us not being part of the European Union, I'm not too sure if that rips up that European Charter of Minority Languages, um, because the UK was a signatory and Scotland wasn't. Um, but year on year, reports have found that the UK government and both the Scots government have failed to um, to like hit the marks on Scots, not so much Gaelic. But recently we've had um, the French government passed a law, it's a, a glottophobia law or glottophobia, um, banning, uh, basically outlawing di- linguistic discrimination because there was a lot of like, um, even a few months ago, like um, a Basque version of Catalan was outlawed in, in the French government. And it's it's just not, things are not going too well. The the Frisque, Frisque, Frisque University has like a great um, mailing list that they send out and it basically updates you on all of the goths with minority language rights. It's really important. It's really cool. Um, but yeah, Welsh is like thriving. But that's because the first minister of Wales... He, he isn't terrified of our languages. You know, you see people like Douglas Ross, who I from the Northeast. Same with Andrew Bowie and Alexander Burnett. You know, when it's time to campaign, they're happy to sign all of the Ur Vice pledges to support Doric because that's their constituency. But as soon as they're elected, they're not what to be seen. They don't come to the Scots language CPG. They're not bothered about um, lobbying for any sort of language act. They they just sign everything during the campaign. And I know that that happens with everything. But yeah, I think it's really sad that a lot of these Doric-speaking Heartland um, MSPs and MPs, they do not care about, about promoting the language. And when you listen to people like Karen Adams speak... She might not be using the Doric words, but you can hear the accent. And of course, there's like conflation between Scottish Standard English and then Scots. And like people can just, it's a continuum. So people like choose, they can like drop it. It can be really broad or it can just be really Scottish Standard English. Um, and depending on what I'm speaking about, I can drop it in or drop it out or, or who I'm speaking to. Um, and I think Karen does that really well. But um, there's just this idea that if you're speaking Scots, you're working class, you're uneducated, you're uncouth, and that needs to stop. Like when Spotify added Scots as a language to the back end of the platform, Owen Thompson, an SNP MP, put uh, a cute little motion through um, in Westminster. And then a, a Welsh MP said, oh, it'd be really great to, to use more more Welsh and more bilingualism in the chamber. And Jacob Rees-Mogg said, with all due respect, um, Scots and Welsh are foreign languages. I was like, you speak Latin for God's sake. Like, <laughs> come on. Um, yes, but that's so fancy. that's what we're up against. Yes. That's what we're up against. Though, if Jacob Rees-Mogg wants, like, Scots to really be a foreign language, like, cool. <laughs> that's the point, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the vibe. I will say, but, so, yes. Karen Adam is awesome at that. I will say Emma Harper is also... I mean, it's not Doric, right? Because she's from the borders. But uh, she speaks Scots and she'll even say, she goes, oh, I code switched. I find that, I maybe Erin, you feel this way as well, living all over, learning a little bit of a bunch of different languages, 
from listening to the different ways that people speak, I could just feel the Scots wash over me and I might not catch every word, but I just love it. And I, I don't really understand why people react to that with anger. They just hate it. But they hate, I think it's because it's different. Just like Gaelic, it's different. So, you know, up in the Northeast, people would say like, didna, kudna, widna, whereas here it would be didney, widney, kidney. Or like things like a contraction of cannot would be canny here. Oh, I can't do that. Whereas up north in Aberdeenshire, it would be like, oh, I can't do that. Like, it's completely different. Dinny, dinna, um, kudna, wouldna, shouldna, like, stay. People would say to stay in Glasgow, it would be stay. But in Aberdeenshire, people would say bide. Or, like, mm. round the house would be like, bane a hoose. And, like, there's so many similarities between um, Doric, Scots, and you know, like Norwegian, you know, like sma, small, bra, bra, Shetland as well, um, hoose, kirk, bairn, strew, like all of the, the languages, sang screever, songwriter, same in Danish, same in Scots. Like I think people are terrified of Scots because it's different and it's really, really European um, because there is that West Germanic similarity because in German it's like, Ain twa three four wait Scots is like ain twa three four five six even act nine ten eleven twelve and then in German it's like ein zwei drei vier fünf sechs sieben acht neun yeah so it's like very it's very similar <laughs> and I think that with maybe Gaelic and Gaelic they recognise that as a binary language it's either you know it or you don't know it because it's either zero or, or one um and it's a Celtic language whereas Scots West Germanic there is mutual intelligibility with English because that's just how it is. Um, and and they, they don't feel like it's a binary language because they kind of understand, but they don't. I love it when someone like will slag me off on Twitter, but they'll use Scots to do it whilst denying that Scots a language. I was like, but you've just used... Oh, it's, it's crazy. I, I just can't believe that in culture wars, people are like just attacking attacking languages. And this isn't about, you know, I'm not campaigning to get like street signs saying Aberdeen or like <laughs> Gleska. Like for me it's not about that. It's about uh, broadcasting, music, publishing, um, education in schools, having Scots in the curriculum, not just like trailed out for Burns Week. So actually having like Scots poetry within the English language section. Um my drama teacher, you know, we we got to do some plays and add in Scots to it, which was amazing. We did like seven eighty four plays, but that was down to the teacher. Uh, managing to get us through the you know national five higher um more in music there should be much more like you know the prescribed gallic language songs for music that's great we don't have that for scots so i had to do classical singing because scots didn't have like a prescribed set of like here's your higher music scots songs but my degree was in scots songs so i had to do both classical and scots song which was really it was effectively doing two two um, hires at the same time which wasn't easy so yeah there's it's not just about street signs and all that kind of stuff it's about making sure that kids have the ability to like integrate that within their education because like if you if you turn on the tv like so many good shows are being commissioned using scots now and i'm i love that but we need to keep that going forward 
Oh, this is amazing because this is definitely something different than we've discussed on the pod before. Um, because we always talk about immigrant stuff because we're both immigrants. <laughs> you know, we used to talk about... Uh, <laughs> I still managed to shoehorn Canada into it because of fine. my family's lost language. Though I, I do need to like make sure that I like say when I'm talking about Canada and language policy, minority languages, obviously the languages that are at most threat in Canada are the indigenous languages. Um uh, because of the residential schools basically taking people out of their communities and torturing them into speaking English and completely breaking the chain of transmission Which is also for so many indigenous languages. Why when when Scottish people like please have patience with Americans and Canadians who are obsessed with learning about like Scottish culture and, and their own heritage because uh you can't you can't go far in in the heritage and history of uh America and Canada. Uh, without getting to some genocide of First Nation people. So, and, and, you know, there wasn't really much integration. So that's that's part of why when people search for where they came from, it'll it'll sound blood and soil, but it doesn't come from a place of that. It can, but it definitely doesn't most of the time. And like, sometimes it definitely comes from a place of, well, I know I definitely don't belong here. Yeah. So... Where okay. am I from? And like, yeah. I grew up. I think on it's the- when they come in with statistics about their blood, and I'm like, come on, because in Scotland we don't care yeah. about your your genetic makeup. If you want to come here and be a new Scot, you're gonna let you, we're gonna let you do that. We love that. So it feels uncomfortable when someone comes in with like a percentage of what they think their blood is. So yeah, yeah. that's weird. I think that's the vibe that I was going for with the blood and soil. Definitely, thing. definitely. Uh, but I'm, I'm so interested in the. I was no, going to no, say I have going. one great grandparent that's Norwegian, and they never let us forget it because everybody else was German. So I don't have Scottish blood, so I never run into that here. But people will go, "Oh, so do you say that blood thing?" I'm like, "Well, my nor." Norwegian great grandpa would make sure we knew what parts of the things we were doing were Norwegian. <laughs> um, but it was more of that of keeping <laughs> your culture alive in a new place. And it, and then it changes and it and it morphs into something cool and different, but still related. So just have patience. So I'm, have patience with us. I love, I absolutely love Appalachian folk music because, you know, you can meet. So I was teaching at a, uh, like a music camp in Massachusetts last year. And there was this ace workshop that I did with uh, with a singer from the Appalachian Mountains. I'm not sure what stage she was from, um, but West basically Virginia, we Kentucky. had to pick. Yeah, it was, it was one of those. We had to basically pick five ballads, and she would do the North American variant, and I would do the Aberdeenshire variant, and we could be able to kind of figure out where the like original was from, and then how the the other ones had changed. Because there was so many people, if, there's a great book, it's called Wayfaring Stranger, um, it's written by Fiona Ritchie, and the foreword was written by Dolly Parton. I know Fiona Ritchie, but not Dolly Parton. Um, and it was about people from Aberdeenshire, people from Scotland, going to Ulster, and then going over to um, Smoky Mountains, Appalachian Mountains, going over to, to the, you know, East America as well, uh, New England and all that kind of stuff. And all of the songs that you could basically trace from my home region t- to theirs. And you can see how beautifully they've been adapted and changed to suit their their twangs. And 
yeah, the the I mean, without um, Scottish and Irish folk music, we we wouldn't have certain types of bluegrass music and country music. And I guess like talking about the banjo is a whole different um, thing. That that the banjo is a black instrument. It's from um, black and ethnic minority peoples, um, and that's been appropriated. That's a different kettle of fish. But without um, the people that went over to to America, these Scots, Irish, whatever English. We wouldn't have some traditions there that that exist today, and it's I'm I love it that people um people want to share that tradition. I really really love that. So when you're speaking to folkies and they're like, oh, I know this ballad, it's kind of from Aberdeenshire, but we've got a version in Kentucky, and it's been collected by folklorists, and they've trawled over, um, you know, they've went and collected all these songs, but then they've categorised them as um like English folk songs from the Southern Appalachians and I'm like no that song is okay typically from Aberdeenshire so folklorists try to rewrite our history even abroad um people like Cecil Sharp and that's that's really tricky or or you know it's, it's British folk songs from the Southern Appalachian Mountains or it's it's you know there is erasure there as well we can it's like it's it's always going to be like that folklorists want to rewrite our history too it's really that's interesting with that Mm-hmm. I, and you know what? I have to. I have to um, kind of bring this a little bit into the independence and politics parts. Sorry, not sorry. Maggie Chapman, who has also been on the show, friend of the show. Um, <laughs> she please fiddle. Sorry, she plays fiddle. She does. I, actually, I I remember. I think it was before the last SNP conference. There was a like a non-party thing the night before with the Aberdeen independence movement. And Maggie spoke so powerfully about the power of song and arts and how, you know, some of us are campaigners, some of us are door knockers, some of us are organizers and, you know, very good with paperwork like me. Um, and some people, but we, we can't ignore the importance of telling that story through art, through music, through song, through, through, I don't know, like, Def Jam poetry or whatever um, <laughs> that will change people's minds and reach people who could not give a flying fuck about politics. Yeah, and that's where the the Trade Union Congress actually does a really good job at putting on you know amazing events. Um, you know, a dearly departed friend of mine was Rab Noakes, who was not a nationalist. He was not a member of the SNP. He was a Labour hardcore man till he died. But he was pragmatic and he was willing to listen, talk. And he was one of the biggest allies um, for me in my campaign against sexual harassment in the traditional music industry. One of his last ever emotions was on that before he um, he died. Amazing advocate. And he, he was a protest singer. He was friends with Jerry Rafferty, toured with Jerry Rafferty. You know, people like Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, these, even Bob Dylan, like, these are my idols completely. But they're kind of more tied, I guess, in my brain to the the red movement, if that makes any Mm. sense. But, like, in my brain, when I think of, like, Billy Bragg or, like, Dick Gawkin, I think Dick Gawkin was, yeah, he kind of, like, in my brain springs, like, Labour movement, not Labour Party, but, like, trade union movement. When I go to things like the Trade Union Congress, I do feel like I stick out like a sore thumb, you know, and like comments have been p- made on Twitter about, you know, like, oh, that SNP person. Like, it's, it's really difficult because I think that my background is that, you know, I do a lot of songs that are protest songs, like the Kenya Street one, like Scotland Yet, um, which was about devolution. And I've had situations where I've mailed it to my radio plugger and he said, it's not going to, this isn't going to work. 
because you know one of the songs Scotland Yet the third verse got basically faded out by BBC Ulster it was like four weeks before the 2021 um, election it's very difficult to be a protest singer now and I can't imagine how it would have been in America in the 60s 70s 50s when I guess there was McCarthyism and a lot of censorship and like these folk singers were bandied up and you know radio was told do not play them but I feel like it's still happening now I would rather a radio station especially a BBC one just didn't play the song as opposed to play half the song and then fade the political message out that's integrity of the artist but that also means that I'm not making that royalty so it's so difficult to make a living out of music nowadays that if you are political and you've stuck your flag to the mast it's it's difficult really really hard but yeah, it's a shame because I really do enjoy a lot of those kind of STC um, gig things where it's, you know, they're they're singing that, the Bandera Rosa and all that kind of stuff. And I, I love it and I can get involved with it. But it's the constitutional question that, that divides us and creates a little bit of an elephant in the room. I don't know if you get that vibe. I mean, I work at Parliament, so that vibe is omnipresent to me. <laughs> I don't like being unkind to people and I don't, and I'm not very good at lying or being fake. So I try and find one thing that I can talk to each person about if I can't avoid them. Uh, if it's anybody I work with on any level, I usually try to find one thing that we agree on. And that's what we chat about. That's an amazing life lesson from Kat. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's I mean, great. Just dealing with stuff. I don't know what you think about this, Iona, but our very first episode of this podcast was right after Kenmere Street. Right. Aaron was oh, there wow. and I followed along with it. So since this is our relaunch again, our second relaunch after <laughs> after a break uh, and in honor of Aaron finally finishing her PhD, would you want to <laughs> sing the Kenbeer Street version of your Woody Guthrie song? Or you could do it later and we can add it. I am going to give you the mp3 of our band doing it because you don't want to hear me singing it unaccompanied. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm going to give you the um, version that we recorded at Celtic Connections in 2021. It's got a full band, electric guitars, all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm really proud of it. I haven't actually put that out there. Um, so the song was released, Ooh, but not, not this version. So you guys, you guys can 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 do that. Um, and I really had hoped to get into the studio and properly record it and find a way to, you know, donate part of the, the ro- very little royalties that it would bring in to a charity like Refugee or something. But we haven't been able to do that. So I'm just going to, like, put the video out there Um on maybe the anniversary next year or I think it was actually written to this week uh in 2021 so that'll be really nice to to a little premiere oh wonderful amazing thank you right um so we will do that to end out the show you do your question Erin okay so this is a question I've shamelessly stolen from journalist Carrie Poppy um, that she asks all of her interviewees is there anything that you wish we had asked you interesting I mean I think we've had a really nice conversation sometimes I go away from interviews I'm like damn it I should have spoken about this <laughs> but I don't think we've we've covered a lot <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna right. go away from this and be like damn I should have mentioned this <laughs> um, um and then yeah, is no. there anything that you'd like to plug what where can we see you. What, what are you excited about so I'm not sure when this is going out, 
But later on in the summer, I'm finally going to drop a Scots language translation of Taylor Swift's love story um, in line with her announcing her European dates. I'm very excited <laughs> about that because people have wanted it for a while. Um, so that's that's going to come out probably in August or September. But I'm going on tour in the US in August in the East Coast. So I'm excited for that. But other than that, absolutely nothing to plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did see that uh, Iona did recently, like recently as in like in the last few hours, tweet out, what do you want to hear in Scots? What do you want to hear translated of your favorite songs? And I have commented with something that popped into my head, but uh, we will drop the link to that in the show notes so that you can add your suggestions. <laughs> Anything for you to plug, Erin? Uh, yes. Um, so it's Pride Month. So please, please, please uh, look up the Pride Month calendar. Uh, it's on Equality Network's Twitter and a bunch of other people have made Pride Month calendars as well. Find out your local Pride and go to it. Go see some smaller Prides because um, they all need support. And if you're bi, please, please come out to Pride. It's for you too. It's for us. And come to Edinburgh Pride and see us. Hello. That's all for this month's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to check out our sibling podcast, Hollywood Ungagged, where David, Brian, and a guest co-host, which is sometimes me, talk about the latest developments in Scottish politics every week. For written content and more, you can find us at leftungagged.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at underscore ungagged. And now, as promised, here is Iona Fife singing her adaptation of Woody Guthrie's Deportee, entitled Kenmare. The city is quiet, the morning is breaking, the people are making their daily commute. But down in the south side they've spied a big white van, the government say they're to end a dispute. Over two men who settled and thrived in this nation, who made it their home and who worked all their lives. Torn from their homes on the holiest day, and judged by press through bigoted eyes. The suits down in Whitehall make justifications for tearing a family apart in the streets. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. All they will call you will be deportees. But the people of Glasgow, they took to the streets, defending their neighbours, raided at dawn.
Who wears her posh suit and to smirk